Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Thank you very much, Helen, for reading that passage to us. And uh, please keep it open as we're going to explore it together for a little while now. Um, if you're kind of wondering what the significance of that passage is, what the kind of meaning of it is, well, just look at the next verse and the heading there where it talks about the authority of the Son. Because the conversation that follows this miracle helps us interpret the significance of the miracle. And at its heart, what's at stake is the authority of Jesus. So that's where we're going to be focusing this evening. But I wonder how you actually feel about authority. The title of this evening's service, how do you feel about that? The film director Adam Curtis says, nobody trusts in authority today. It's one of the main features of our age. Wherever you look, there are lying politicians, crooked bankers, corrupt police officers, cheating journalists, and double-minded media barons. And we might add, plus perhaps partying prime ministers. Einstein, the thinker, claimed that unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. And I guess when you look at authoritarian states around the world, it's hard not to agree with Einstein's points. We're not very positive about authority. But at the same time, we kind of know that total anarchy doesn't work either. Think about it in terms of sports. The American football coach Vince Lombardi said, football is like life. It requires perseverance, self-denial, hard work, sacrifice, dedication, and respect for authority. Because no team is going to do any good if nobody's in charge and there's no master plan. There needs to be a figure of authority in the team if the team's going to pull together. And if you ask any coach of team sports, they'll say pretty much the same thing. So 
We don't like authority, but we kind of know that we need it as well. And I guess particularly when things aren't going well, we know we need it. Just think of what's been happening in the Met Police the last little while with all the controversies that have bubbled up over the last two or three years. And as we look on at what's from the outside, at least, doesn't seem to be going very well, what do we do? What do we think? Well, we call for a great leader. We call for someone with integrity and the authority to step in and sort it out. So sometimes we don't like authority, but sometimes it's exactly the thing that we want. Someone to come and sort it out. So what can we do with authority? Where can we find an authority that we can actually trust? Where can we find an authority grounded in something beyond ego and power, without fear, favor, or human fallibility? Where can we find that authority? Well, I think the answer in this passage is that we can find it in the Jesus who is presented here in John chapter 5. Why? Well, it all boils down to who he is, and that's the basis of his authority. We're going to open it up. There are quite a few headings tonight, but most of them are just going to be brief, okay? So trying to give you a kind of overview. First of all, obviously, we see in the passage, Jesus' authority to heal. Remind you of the story, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He visits this pool called Bethesda, where people with disabilities were known to congregate. And the waters of this pool every so often seem to get kind of disturbed in some way. And there seems to be this belief going on that when they did get disturbed, the waters acquired a kind of healing property of some kind. Now, we don't really know the background to that. The, uh, the footnotes suggest a kind of superstitious thing going on. Whew, it's windy out there, isn't it? Superstitious thing going on about an angel coming down and stirring the water. But that isn't in the kind of official text. The Bible doesn't really affirm that view. So we're not sure. And one of the things that we know about this pool, actually, is that it was fed by multiple springs. And one of the ancient sources describes the redness of the water in one of those springs. So it's quite possible that one of the things that happened that caused the water to be disturbed was when that particular spring was fed into the pool, the water got disturbed, lots of mineral content came in, and people get into the pool and found it had healing properties. That's a possible explanation of what was going on here. Whatever exactly the background, Jesus spots this guy there who's been in a bad way for a long time, 38 years, and asks him if he wants to get better, which of course he does. That's why he's by the pool. But what happens? Verse 7, the disabled man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, picked up his mat and he walked. It's incredible. It's just the most extraordinary miracle. A life restored and instantaneously restored without any ongoing therapy to allow his muscles to rebuild and learn all the neural pathways in his brain to enable him to walk again. No, all of that short-circuited. He's up, he's walking, he's carrying his mat. Amazing. So, in the end, turns out that this man didn't need the waters of the pool to make him well. What he needed was the word of Jesus. 
because Jesus had the authority to heal. That's the story here. Now, of course, the fact that Jesus has the authority to heal raises all kinds of questions for us. I think we have to say it doesn't mean that Jesus always heals every disease whenever we want him to or ask him to. Ultimately, there will be healing for all our diseases in the new creation. But now, sometimes we have to live with disease and difficulty for a long time, however much we pray. But every time Jesus does heal, including when he heals today, and I believe he does, every time, it's like a signpost to the ultimate healing of the whole of creation that will happen when he comes again. Because Jesus does have the authority to heal everything. And finally, he will. And we'll live in a new creation with no more suffering, crying, mourning, or pain. Authority to heal. I'm going to move on to the next authority thing in a minute, but we're just going to take a quick digression here because I want to ask the question, okay, great story, but can we actually believe this stuff? I mean, number one, hasn't science taken us beyond primitive belief in miracles? To which we might want to say, well, science actually requires us to have an open mind and to go with the evidence. And the problem with people that read the Bible with a determination that miracles can't happen is that very often they assume that miracles can't happen and then use that assumption to filter out all the evidence to the contrary and then say, there you go, miracles don't happen. That doesn't work. No, good science requires an open mind. And sometimes there are things that happen that we can't easily explain. Miracles, it seems, do happen. But for me, the whole thing hinges on who Jesus was. You see, if Jesus was, as some people say, just a kind of apocalyptic guru from the first century world, then to be honest, I'm with the skeptics on this one. I don't think apocalyptic gurus from the first century world probably did do many miracles. But... If Jesus really is God in human flesh, as John claims and Callum reminded us in those readings at the beginning, and if he himself went on to rise from the dead, as the evidence strongly suggests, then to be honest, it would be more surprising if he didn't do some miracles. But then there's a second question. Okay, maybe miracles are possible, but can we believe particularly the miracles in John's gospel that are a seri- that's the, uh, the series that we're going through at the moment? Because John's gospel was probably the last of the gospels to be written. And actually, when you read it through, it does seem to make rather clearer and bolder claims about who Jesus was and what he did than the other Gospels do. And so some people claim that what it does is show more about how Christian thought about Jesus developed in the first century than about what Jesus actually said. In other words, it was written late because John made most of it up and it didn't happen. I have to say I'm not convinced, but because... It's what a lot of people say about John's gospel. It's important that we actually know how we might respond. John's gospel is different from the other three gospels. Now, we shouldn't overstate that. There are many points where the history lines up very well between John's gospel and the others. And there are other points where the two kind of interlock so that you read something in John and it kind of solves a puzzle in the other gospels and vice versa. So there is a kind of coherence about them, but still they are different. 
But different isn't wrong. One of the things we always teach people in marriage kind of issues where we're working through different families. And we want to say difference is right or difference is wrong. And no, difference isn't wrong. Jesus in a circle, we can find this in the other Gospels, was three people, Peter, James, and John. And this gospel is the only one that comes directly from that inner circle of Jesus' intimate soulmates. Now, just imagine, to use another analogy for a minute, two biographies of Tony Blair, previous prime minister, okay? One biography over here by a BBC journalist, Andrew Marr or someone like that, who's kind of collected from all the sources and put it together. And then another that comes years later by Alistair Campbell, his close friend, his confidant. Would you expect those two biographies to be the same or different? You'd expect them to be different because they're written in a fundamentally different way from fundamentally different perspectives. But that wouldn't make either one of them wrong or unbelievable or unreliable. John's gospel is best read as something much more like the second of those, the Alistair Campbell version, the version from right close up from a confidant of Jesus, from the inner circle who reflected for decades on what he had heard Jesus say and slowly came to understand more and more clearly its radical, far-reaching impact. When it comes to this passage, the description of the pool of Bethesda in the early verses near the Sheep Gate it in fact lines up perfectly with what we know from the archaeology. There was a big excavation there in the 1890s, and it describes it just like this, even down to the number of colonnades around the pools. There's much more that could be said, but I just want to give you a sense of confidence that it is reasonable to take John's gospel seriously. And what it teaches is that Jesus has authority, including authority to heal but there's much more, and I'm just going to run much more briefly through the rest. He also has authority to challenge us. Verse 14, Jesus later found the man at the temple and said to him, See you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that when we suffer... It's always because of something that we specifically have done. Jesus specifically speaks against that worldview in John chapter 9, if you're interested. But every experience of brokenness, whether mental or physical, that we may have, is evidence of the underlying brokenness and messed upness of life as we experience it. We're in a messed up world, and we are messed up, broken People. Something is wrong with the world. As Solzhenitsyn famously said, the line separating good and evil passed not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. Every encounter with brokenness reminds us of our own internal brokenness, our own deep problem that we have decentered God and put ourselves in his, in his place, what the Bible calls sin. And because Jesus has shown his authority to heal this man, he also claims the authority to challenge him with that underlying reality of his deep inner brokenness, of which the outer brokenness was just an outworking. And Jesus challenges us 
in the same way. We all have PhDs in blame shifting and self-justification. But Jesus has authority to cut through our nonsense and to show us our deep needs, our need for change, our need for forgiveness, our need for grace. Authority to challenge us. But when he challenges us to change, Jesus isn't saying, just go get religion. Because actually what we find about Jesus is that he's more critical about religion than he is about most things in life. So the third authority is authority to challenge religious tradition, verses 9 to 16. The controversy that Jesus generates kicks off immediately from the healing because the healing happened on the Jewish Sabbath, their Saturday. And Jewish tradition outlawed both Jesus' work of healing and the man's, quotes, work of carrying his mat. Whether that really should be counted as work seems unlikely to me, but that was part of the kind of pedanticness of the tradition at the time. And so this provokes controversy. And the man goes for a bit of blame shifting, doesn't he? Verse 11, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. If you want to blame someone, blame him, he's saying. But then they're not sure who the him was, but it emerges that it was Jesus. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who had made him well. And so verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now, someone who can speak a word and heal a man who's been disabled for 38 years is hardly going to be too worried about breaking with a little bit of man-made religious tradition, isn't he? Is he? And Jesus certainly isn't going to be bound by the pedantic traditions of the time. No, he had authority to challenge religious tradition, and he still does. The other day, I was just standing at the door at the end of a church service, and uh, a man was, uh, was there who I'd seen a couple of times, and we were chatting a little bit on the way out. Uh, he's had a rough life, and he'd not long been out of prison, and he was just struggling to believe that Jesus could really love him and forgive him. And so I looked him in the eye. He's a lovely guy. I've started to get to know him, but I looked him in the eye and said, hey, it's so brilliant you're in church, because, you know, the Jesus I know seemed to love hanging around with guys like you. Actually, it was people like me, the religious professionals, that he gave such a hard time to. And it's true, isn't it? Jesus was known. He was criticized for being the friend of tax collectors and sinners. But he was so often the critic of religion. He has authority to challenge religious tradition. Why did he have that authority? Was it just because he was a bolshy kind of character who liked stirring up a bit of controversy? No, it's much, much deeper. Let's explore briefly why he had that authority. Well, the next thing turns out to be that he has authority himself to work on the Sabbath. And as we see why, it all begins to make sense. Verse 17 Jesus, in his defense, said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. What on earth is Jesus saying? Well, there was a debate that went on at the time among the rabbis about whether God kept the Sabbath. Did God work on Saturdays or not? What if God took a day off every week? Who then would sustain and rule the universe? No one. 
It would all seize up. That was how the argument went. So therefore, God couldn't keep the Sabbath rules. He had to be free always to be at his work, which is what Jesus was referring to in verse 17. My father is always at his work to this very day. He doesn't take a day off. But then Jesus is claiming that he shares the father's exemption from the Sabbath laws. End of verse 17, I too am working. He's claiming to be so uniquely related to the God he calls my father that he too can work always. In other words, Jesus' authority to challenge their tradition rests in the reality that he shares the authority of God because he is the son of God. Are you beginning to get a sense of just how awesome this Jesus is. But the fact that Jesus shares the authority of God doesn't turn him into just some kind of free-floating, unaccountable, loose cannon going around doing whatever he likes with no one to stop him. That's the kind of power we rightly fear and want to run away from, isn't it? But Jesus' power wasn't like that because the next thing we see is that his authority was actually profoundly in tune with the Father's initiative, verses 19 to 21. Now, let me be honest, I barely understand what's being said here. It's way beyond my brain to completely get it. Read verse 19. We're probing mystery. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, can you, my brain just kind of hits all over the place in that verse. I'm struggling to get it. Jesus, he says, does nothing by his own initiative. In other words, his actions are all perfectly in tune with the father's initiative. But that doesn't make him some kind of cut-down, subordinate version of God because the verse finishes that whatever the father does, the son also does. So on the one hand, he doesn't just act independently. He's in tune with the father. On the other hand, there's nothing the father does that Jesus doesn't do. Does the father sustain the universe 24-7? Yes, then Jesus does as well. Does the Father hold every human being accountable to him as the final judge? Yes, then Jesus does as well. Does the Father love the world and long for its salvation? Yes, then so does Jesus. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Hope you're beginning to worship because this Jesus is awesome. So the healing at the pool, I mean, that's pretty impressive helping a person walk who's been disabled for 38 years. But as Jesus gets to this point, it's as if he's saying, look, you might be impressed by the healing, but you haven't seen anything yet. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. There's more, you see. And so verse 20, he says, For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Something much greater than just healing a disabled man. The father is going to show through his son, Jesus. What is he talking about? Well, two things, and with these we'll finish. Number one, authority to judge 
And number two, authority to give life. Authority to judge. Verse 22, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Did you feel the weight of those last few words? That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. In other words, the unique honor and worship that is due only to God, our creator, is due also to his son, Jesus. What an incredibly high view of Jesus is emerging here. The father has resolved that Jesus is to be honored just as he is. And in tangible terms, that means that we are accountable to Jesus for how we live our lives. All judgment has been entrusted to him. Now, I know very well, because I live in the same world as you do, that our culture protests every day against the right of anyone, least of all some distant God in heaven, to judge the way that we live. How dare he? But the more we protest, the more meaningless our vision of life becomes until all that is left is our own little world of our choices, wants, and desires. Our desire to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain and then rot in the ground. Because in the end, there is no one out there who cares what we do. It's just you and your little choices. Can you feel the shallowness, the emptiness, the vacuousness of that whole way of looking at the world. And the Bible screams against that kind of nihilism on every page. And it says, no, there is a God who is in himself perfect goodness and who made us for himself and to whose authority we will finally answer. However much we may try to imagine him out of existence, he's there. And one day we will face him. He has authority to judge whether we accept that authority or not. But then it takes a really wonderful twist, a wonderful turn that's beautifully tender, because it tells us that the Father has entrusted all that judgment to Jesus. End of verse 27, he has given Jesus authority to judge because he is the Son of Man, because he became a human being and lived among us. So yes, there is accountability. Yes, there is judgment. Yes, life is not meaningless because somebody does care how we live. But the one who will judge you is the one who himself lived through temptation and weakness and rejection and struggle. He understands. The one who will judge you is the one who, as we saw a few moments ago, was the friend of sinners hanging around, hanging around with tax collectors and prostitutes. The one who will judge you is in the end the one who died for you and took the blame on himself for everything sinful you ever did or said or thought. And he did it so that you could walk free from the blame. Your judge loves you more perfectly than anyone else in the universe. And so there is no reason to resist or reject his authority, but rather to receive and trust it. With trembling, yes, but with joy as well. Authority to judge. And finally, 
authority to give eternal life. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, live, live. Not just any boring old life. No, life in the richest, fullest, truest, most satisfying possible sense that you could ever imagine. Perfectly satisfying life in intimate relationship with God, sharing his home, sharing his reign over creation, sharing his passion for justice, sharing his joy forever with no suffering, no sorrow, no crying, no mourning, no death. Life! And Jesus has the authority to give it. And he's demonstrated it in his own resurrection from the dead. So friends, this is the authority of Jesus. Authority to heal. Authority to challenge everything destructive and dehumanizing in us. Authority to challenge religion. Authority with the Father. Authority to judge. Authority to give perfect, glorious, satisfying life. And this Jesus, the unique, majestic son of the Father, stands before each of us this evening and asks us how we respond to that authority. Friend, how are you responding to that authority right now in your life? Are you resisting pushing it away, running from his authority, trying to justify your rebellion with spurious self-justifying arguments that are actually sucking the life out of you? Or have you received this magnificent Jesus as your king and embraced his authority as the life-giving, sin-forgiving, mess-healing, and mighty power? that it actually is. Jesus, the awesome son with wonderful authority.